grab a Bible. Good morning. All right, let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Thrilled that you are here. If you're new, um, we have an app you can uh, download from the App Store. Let us know you're here. We also have uh, connect cards floating around, maybe in the seat back in front of you. My name is Mike. I have the greatest job in the history of the world. I, what, do, what do you do? People say, well, I teach the Bible and I get to lead a church. Uh, I get to help lead a church. And that is like pretty awesome. So um, I'm glad you're here. I don't know if you have the greatest job in the world. Anybody else feel like they've got the greatest job? All right. Well, you're all wrong. I, I've got it. Um, <laughs> we're talking about the church. What, what, we want to recapture this word and what it means and the implications for it. And, and I want to read a section from a letter uh, from a guy named Paul. Paul is a, a church planter, a missionary in the first century. He planted churches all over Asia Minor and the Mediterranean Basin. And uh, part of his ministry was raising money for the church in Jerusalem. As you know, Jesus was crucified there, resurrected there, and the church was birthed in its Jewish context in Jerusalem. About a decade after that, there was a great famine in that region of the world. And so Paul goes to the churches that he'd been planting, and he's asking them for money to bless the Jerusalem church. Now, there was one group of churches he had left out. And it was the churches in a place called Macedonia. These churches were incredibly, incredibly poor. And as a grace to them, he did not appeal to them for funds. But in a letter that Paul writes to a different church in a city called Corinth, he mentions the Macedonians and how they wanted to contribute anyway. And I want to show you just a series of words that I think are really interesting juxtaposed together. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Paul writing to a church in Corinth, he says, and now brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now, how often do you hear those phrases together in a sentence? Extreme poverty, overflowing joy, rich generosity, all at once, true of the same people. Have you ever heard that? We don't think of those things. We think of poverty and joy as opposite things. We think of poverty and generosity as opposite things. But in the scriptures, they're fully compatible. Notice what Paul goes on to say. He says, For I testify that these churches gave as much as they were able, even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. In other words, Paul hadn't initially invited them to participate out of sensitivity to them, but they got wind that there was an offering being taken, and they're like, we're in. We don't care. And so what Paul identifies is something I I think incredibly beautiful. It is possible to have no money and yet be rich. And the converse is it's possible to have lots of money and be poor. Right? It's possible that, that you're living hand to mouth, you're living paycheck to paycheck, you don't have a lot of margin. It's possible for you to have such trust and such a huge open spirit that you're rich in God's sight. And it's also possible, Orange County, California, to have loads of money and to be so wrapped up and bound up and tight and worried and anxious about it that you're actually poor. 
So there's a poor kind of rich and a rich kind of poor, according to the scriptures. So we want to explore this a little bit. Because central to the fellowship of believers together in something we call a church is the idea that they are sharing their resources. And so anytime you talk about money, resources, finances, people all over just roll their eyes and go, here we go again. I get that. And I also get why. There, have, there, is, there are so many charlatans and pretenders out there scheming people out of their money in Jesus' name that I can hardly stand it. I wish I could just give you a list of their names so we could all protest. Because anybody who says they need a $65 million jet is a liar, right? So just as a word of advice, never trust somebody with the last name Dollar. Just don't ever do that. (laughs) This was one of the, I just, I'm so burnt by them because it makes money harder to talk about and money is central to discipleship to Jesus. So because of all those abuses, I just don't ever want to talk about it. Because, I mean, I was talking, I'm a, I'm a chaplain for Fullerton Police Department, and one of my sergeants on Friday, is like, oh, what are you going to talk about on Sunday? Money. He said, oh, of course. And I said, what's that mean? He said, well, I'm not a church guy. My wife drug me to a church down our road, and that's all they talked about for six or eight weeks. So I never came back. And I said, well, I wouldn't either. I get that, but still, it's so central. And Orange County, it happens to be our favorite idol. So... Let's talk a little bit about the rich kind of poor and the poor kind of rich. Shall we? I'll try to make this as painless as possible. This is a guilt-free zone. Okay? No manipulations. No mood music. This is just, I just want to go over straightforwardly biblical teaching. All right? Sarah McLaughlin is not going to play a song (laughs) at the end of this thing. And we took the offering already, so we're good, right? All right, so no manipulation coming. Now, the question is, why does the Bible emphasize giving and generosity so much? And so I'm going to punch through a bunch of really boring slides, and I'm doing it boring on purpose, because I don't, I don't want to move you in any way, shape, or form other than just by saying, here's the biblical teaching. So, why should we give? Reason number one, I think there's seven, because all we have is God's. <laughs> I mean, it just starts there. God made everything. He declared it to be good. And everything you have is a gift. You did nothing to earn the heartbeat that's coming in the next second. You did nothing to ensure that the breath that's coming in the next second actually gets the carbon dioxide and the oxygen gets transferred in your lungs. You got no control over that. In biblical teaching, God gives you life, breath, and everything else. And we will say, yeah, but I worked for it. God didn't go to school. I did it. And all that's true. But who gave you the ability to think? The ability to study. I mean, so biblical teaching is no one gets to say, how much of my money do I give God? The other question and the much more painful question is how much of God's money do I spend on myself? And I know it gets really quiet on that one. And then, and then we're actually held accountable for how we use our lives and possessions. There's actually an account evidently that we have to give. Secondly, This should be an act of worship. Remember, worship is declaring something worthy. And the number one way Orange County Americans declare things worthy is with their money. That is just true. And so God, not the church, is the object of our giving. So, this is really important. Does God need your money? Not even remotely. He's got plenty. Does the church need your money? Not really. 
I mean, sincerely, suppose we declared this was the last Sunday. The rest of us could go get jobs. I mean, I've got a job. I go back to my previous career in the modeling sock industry. And and, and we could sell all this. And would the church be harmed? No, the church is indestructible, brothers and sisters. We're not dependent on whether or not we have a building. We're not dependent upon whether or not we have paid staff people. We're not dependent on any of that. Now, we'll talk about why you give to a church in a second, but ultimately it's God we're giving to, not a church or not an organization. Thirdly, why do we give? Because my heart is attached to my treasure. The biggest way to determine who you actually worship is to look at your budget, not at your worship songs. Because worship songs are easy. Budget actually shows you when it costs something, what's your priority. Now, I hate this. I hate it. Because immediately all week I've been looking at my budget going, man. Because I'm a big fan of Cold Stone ice cream. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Obviously, I'm a large fan too. Now, Beyond meeting our physical needs, how we spend our money shows what we really treasure. Though we may honor God with our lips, how we spend our money reveals the true state of our hearts. Similarly, changing where we put our money actually can help change our hearts too. So one of the ways, it's not like anyone wakes up and says, I feel really generous today. You actually have to learn to do that. Thirdly or fourthly, greed and unqualified accumulation are resoundingly condemned in the Bible and celebrated in Orange County. So we have a, we have a, bit, of a, we have, we have a bit of a discipleship issue. Now, if you're here, you're not a fan of Jesus, thank you for enduring this. But if you're at all serious about following Jesus in this world and in this region, this, this is the heart of discipleship for us. Right? Because our world simply says, the path to joy lies through the accumulation of stuff. And we want to say, no, no, no. There are more warnings about wealth than any other subject in the New Testament, which is ironic because the early church was hardly wealthy. Wealth isn't evil in the scriptures. It just makes discipleship harder. Do you understand that? That is a huge point. Wealth isn't evil. The fact that we all have stuff isn't evil. It's that it makes discipleship harder. Why? Well, because having stuff is fun. And it, 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 for some of us, it, it's a form of recreation. For some of us, it's a form of status. For some of us, it's a certain lifestyle we've grown accustomed to, whatever it is. So why do we give? Oh, this, this one just kills me. Money is the only rival Jesus mentions by name. The only place, he says, you cannot worship both God and money. Ouch. Why should we give generosity as a central part of discipleship? The fruitfulness of many disciples is choked, according to Jesus, by the deceitfulness of wealth. Now, what's the deceitfulness of wealth? How is wealth deceitful? Well, we all know this, because it promises what it can never deliver. If I just had $20,000 more, then... And then you get $20,000 more, and six months after that, you think to yourself, if I just had $20,000 more, again, 
right? I mean, how many of you are making a salary or made a salary at one point in your life that if you were to hear, your high school you were to hear how much you'd be making in your adult life, would have freaked out and thought you'd have been the richest person in the world. But once you got to that amount, you realized it wasn't that much. Anybody else? Right? The deceitfulness of wealth is the never-ending stream of just a little more. And so, Jesus says, listen, if you want to know what chokes discipleship, this is one of those things. Why do we give? It shows my appreciation to God and the fact that I realize it's all grace. God is not interested in people giving out of guilt or duty. He's interested in people giving out of joy. Because they can hardly believe all that they have received, they give back. Now that doesn't, we don't start that way. (laughs) But that's the goal. Mature givers aren't givers that just say, oh, I gotta pay off God again this month. Mature givers are the people that walk around going, God, you've given me so much, how could I not? I do not want to disconnect from the laptop. Why should we give? Because it breaks the power of money over our lives, demonstrates trust in the Father. Why should we give? We are called to assist the poor. This is not optional, this is central. It's central for Israel, it is central for us. 2,000 different passages talking about justice and taking care of the poor. And the early church modeled this. They had three different ways. There was a common treasury. People would sell land and give the money to the apostles, and they would distribute it. They also set aside a crew of people, of leaders, to oversee the distribution of food to widows. And there's actually an example of a special offering they took in Acts chapter 11. If you would, go uh, join me in uh, 1 Corinthians 16 really quickly. So we've just punched through like a sweet list. PowerPoint is awesome. And, and tried to just say, hey, listen, it's not God that needs your money. It's not the church that needs your money. Who needs to learn this? Us. It is a massive discipleship issue. And it is the thing Jesus mentions uh, that will derail our discipleship to him. And it just so happens to be the most favorite idol of Orange County, California. So that whole combination means this is stuff that's relevant for us. Now notice, Paul gives some specific instructions to this church about the collection he was taking for the church in Jerusalem. Notice this. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 1. Now about the collection for the Lord's people. Remember, he's writing to a church in Corinth about the Jerusalem church. And he says, okay, now about collecting money for them, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, so for them that was Sunday, each one of you should set aside a sum of money. And then notice this next phrase. In keeping with your what? So does that sound like everyone's giving the same amount? Not even remotely. Because listen, if you're a senior citizen on a fixed income, this is a different conversation than if you're in your peak earning years or if you're a college student just trying to figure out how being on your own works. But notice, no one's exempt. It's just that each one gives according to their income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the menu of proof and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. So here's what Paul says. Listen, church, we're raising money for Jerusalem church. 
on the first day of the week, set it aside. Make sure you remember to do this because if you don't do it the first day of the week, you won't do it at the end of the week, guaranteed. And then secondly, in keeping with your income, determine what it is that you're going to give. He doesn't guilt them. He doesn't shame them. He doesn't give them a percentage. He just says, give as God leads you. And it won't all be the same amount. And that is just, just fine. So the question becomes, if you're tracking here with PowerPoint, okay, so why we give and learn generously? These are the reasons. But why do you give to a church? If the church doesn't need the money per se, then why do we give to a church? There's a huge one, to be a regular participant in church life. Brothers and sisters, have you heard the term church shopper? Have you heard this term? It's a contradiction in terms. Because a church shopper is someone who, who, oh, I like that and this church and this and this church and this and this church over here. That is the antithesis of what church is. Because church, the, in, the very, in the very nature of the word, is the idea that people are coming and sharing. They all have skin in the game together. And so why do you give to a church? It's a way of planting yourself in a community. It's not just skimming off the top as a consumer. It's actually saying, no, no, I want to participate in what is happening in this group of people. And you know, if you're under the age of 30, commitment is not easy. Let alone commitment to something that you're not fully aware of or commitment to something that's big or commitment to anything, right? And so you think, well, I'm a college kid. This doesn't matter. Nope, nope, it really matters a lot. Because if you understand the church is just something that exists for you in all of its different formations, my goodness, you've missed it entirely. So why do we give to a church? To be a regular participant. To demonstrate that we treasure the bride of Jesus, this thing that we call the church. Why? Because wherever our heart is, our treasure is. Or wherever our treasure is, our heart is. And so one of the ways we demonstrate that we treasure this body of believers is by giving to it. Why are we called to give to church? To surrender the right to control where my money goes. Now, how popular is this one? Zero. No way. Now, listen, wherever you give, yes, there should be accountability and transparency, and yes. But also in America, we give with strings attached. So every now and again, someone will say to me, hey, 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 unless you do this, we're going to stop giving to the church. And you know what I say? then keep your money. If that's the reason you're giving, is to control the thing, that is the wrong reason to do this. Right? We're not interested in exercising more power and control in this. This is an act of surrender, not an act of control. So one of the reasons why you invest yourself in a community is that you go, okay, no strings. When you really want to have strings. Because money is power, and we all know that. So there has to be a place. And if you don't trust the leadership here or wherever, find a place you can trust. Because there is so much power in just releasing. It's not just enough to say, okay, and this is where it's going to go, and this is what you've got to do with it. That's not the surrender Jesus is interested in. So why are we called to give to a church? To surrender the right to control where it goes exactly. Why are we called to give to a church? Because we want to be the singular place in Orange County, California, that calls out the materialistic nature of our world. We want to be the place where simplicity is actually honored over accumulation. We want to be the place where we want to, we want to celebrate stories of downward mobility, not upward mobility. 
We want to be the place where we actually call out the, the, the consumeristic lies of our world. And not just in some sort of like negative form of protest. We want to be the alternative here. You understand that? It's, I'm sick of hearing what we're against. I want to know what we're for. Well, here's what we're for. We're for joy and we're for freedom and we're for generosity. We're for outlandish and ridiculous generosity. For people who even in extreme poverty with overflowing joy can be richly generous. That's what we're for, among many other things. So one of the reasons why you participate in something like this is to build an upside-down kind of community that provides an alternative to the way the world sees wealth. Agreed. (laughs) I think everyone's feeling that way at this point. Why are we called to support the ministry of the church? Now, on the one hand, yes, we don't need money at all. We'd, the church of Jesus would flourish fine. But on the other hand, if we're fans of air conditioning and big rooms and places to meet and all of that, then yes, it, it matters that you participate. How are you doing okay? <laughs> I know. I know. This, it's, it's some of the hardest stuff in the most boring way. That combo is awesome right now. Now, why do we do the baskets? Can we just be honest? I hate the baskets. That little thing we just did, anyone else hate them? Isn't it awkward? I mean, so here's how, here's how I give, not that you particularly care. I give at the office because I work here. <laughs> so I never bring money here. And every time I see the baskets, even though I've already given, I feel guilty <laughs> by not putting anything in there. I'm wondering if people are watching, you know? I mean, anyone else? So why do you do the awkward basket thing? Because in one sense, you can make a great case. Most of the money that is given comes in online. Or people do it through the mail or in the back offering boxes. Why do the the plate thing? And that's a great question. And I knew you were asking. (laughs) Well, one of the reasons why we do the plate thing is because when we continually hold out our goal for people to grow in the area of generosity... So we want to move people from not giving at all to giving something. And move them from giving something to giving regularly. And then move them from giving regularly to giving sacrificially. Now do we do that because the church needs the money? No, we do that because that's evidence of transformation. That's what I'm saying. Can you argue with that? And so, so for me... My wife and I, we do the giving thing, but God keeps continually saying, okay, well, see, the problem with the whole 10% thing, have you heard this, that you've got to give 10%? The prob- one of the problems with the 10% thing is, once you give 10%, who owns the 90? Well, I think I do. So I give 10% to pay off my guilty conscience so that I can enjoy the 90%. Well, the New Testament teaching is, no, he actually owns the whole thing. And we're called to steward the whole thing, which is a far harder teaching. And so that means none of us ever arrives at generosity. So one of the reasons why we do plates is just to remind us we've not arrived. Why do we do plates? We want to invite everyone to participate. So for some people, putting $5 in that sucker is a huge step of faith and trust. And they're not going to do it online and they're not going to do it any other way. And again, it's not about giving to this place. Please understand, giving to God is much larger than giving to the church. Do you you agree with this? 
See, some people will say, no, no, if you give to God, if you're going to give to God, you've got to give to the church. No, 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 no. If you have a neighbor who's in need and you provide food for them, you gave to God. Right? If you give to World Vision, if you give to Crew, if you, I mean, that's all giving to God. So out of your general generosity, why do you give to a church? Bunch of reasons. Why then do we pass the little baskets? Well, one reason is just to increase our maturity and remind us. Another reason is to invite everyone to participate because for some of you, the next step of faith for you is actually putting something in there, and we want to make that as easy as and accessible as possible. We don't want to make you digging around our website to figure out how to do that. If we resist being part of a consumer church culture, it's vitally important to ask people to give and give them the means to do so. We also do the basket thing to give people the opportunity to do it in an organized and systematic way. Because if you're like me, I love giving what's left over. And, and there's a sense in which Paul encourages people to do this in an intentional way or it just won't happen. It's, it's incredibly important to see this as a church body, that the whole church is participating in this act of worship. We want to celebrate generosity. So the baskets represent a revolt against the materialism of our world. And then one of my buddies just puts it this way. It's impossible to disciple consumers. And so every time that little bread or that little basket thing gets passed and I don't like it, you know what it's reminding me of? That I'm here to give and not just receive. And I don't know about you, I kind of need that reminder weekly. Are you with me so far? You might not agree. You might think we're almost done, and that is true. (laughs) How do we give? I hate these words. Supposed to give sacrificially, not to tip God. I love that. Because you know what I want to do? I'll sit here feeling guilty in a a talk like this. And so, okay, here's 20 bucks, God. And that's a way to appease my guilty conscience. And is that what God's looking for? No, God is not looking to take your money. He's looking to make sure your money doesn't take you. That is a massive difference. He doesn't need your money. The church doesn't need your money. You and I need to learn this. It's simple. If you want to be a faithful, lifetime follower of Jesus, you have to learn this area. You have to. Because our world presses against us so dramatically the other way. And so the goal isn't just to tip God and buy off our guilty consciences so that we can then enjoy the rest of it. The goal is we see it as sacrifice. David says it so beautifully, I will not sacrifice that which costs me nothing. So we give sacrificially. We give proportionately. The practice of tithing was never taught to non-Jewish believers. Now, I didn't know this. I was always told you had to give 10%. But the 10% thing comes from the Old Testament. And when Paul, a Jewish guy, instructs non-Jewish churches to give, he never uses the 10% thing. In two places, as you are able and according to your income. That's what he says. Why? Because you can give 10% and still be greedy. And you can give 1% and be the most magnificently generous person in the church. Agreed? Percentage does not reflect heart. And so, the New Testament teaching is learn to be generous and keep yourself free from the love of money. For some of you, your next step is getting out of debt in order to be generous. 
That's your ne- that is an act of faith. For you to sit down with an actual budget and not spend according to any little thing you want. To rip up your credit cards, that is your act of worship. For some of you, you're on a fixed income. And it's scary to do anything. Or for some of you, you're just kind of gliding along the surface of the church and it's scary for you to do anything. Maybe your next step is just a tiny bit. You are sitting next to some of the most generous people in Orange County. Our church is incredibly generous, but it's built on a really narrow pool of people. And we just want to include everybody in the transformation and joy that comes from learning this. So we give proportionately. Now that means college students. College students. Okay, when I was in college, it happened years ago. I believed two lies that I want to demonstrate the falseness of. Lie number one was I didn't have money. I have one word for you. Starbucks. Is that two words? Is that one word? One word, Starbucks. Two syllables. I have two syllables for you. Starbucks. Or smartphone. Maybe that one will work. Right? You have some money. But the second lie you believe that age is that I'll give when I have more. And the biggest lie is this. It gets harder to give the more that you have. Older folks, can we agree with that? That if you're not faithful with a little, you won't be faithful with much. But if you are faithful with a little, more will be entrusted to you. And so, for those of us who are you know, still young, I had... I mean, my first pastor was just pounding me to give, and I'm going, bro, I'm making $6 an hour. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding? And in one sense, I'm glad he did, because it, started, it made it easier so that when I have more, I it just, okay, I give more. That's the way it works. Don't buy the lie, because if you buy the lie that you'll give when you arrive, you live in a culture that says you'll never arrive. And so you'll never start. So this has to start soon. Thirdly, hate this, if you're angry at this conversation, it could be a sign that it's hitting close to the mark, but the goal isn't to give out of anger, guilt, or fear. The goal is to give out of joy. That's the goal. So, God loves a cheerful giver. That doesn't mean that you wait until you're cheerful to do it. <laughs> It means, though, that the goal of it is joy. The goal isn't guilt or duty or obligation. And then lastly, we give out of what we get, not out of what's left over. Because if I do the whole let's, what's left over thing, that, that amounts slightly lower than if I do it off the top. So the way my wife and I do it, we have a, a set-aside a portion to go to the church. We have set aside a portion that goes outside of the church. We've done this for years and years and years, but it didn't start this way. I love money. I love it. I spend much on my wardrobe. I've always been kind of a clothes horse. No. When I was in kindergarten, I kid you not, I wanted to be a stockbroker. Who does that? My wife 
no, my mom, different people, my mom (laughs) showed me a paper. What kind of loser kid? I had just seen the movie Trading Places, old school, 80s, Eddie Murphy, Dan Aykroyd. And I had become so fascinated with commodities trading. Who does that? That I wrote a paper, I wanted to be a stockbroker. So I went to college to get a finance degree, and I became an investment banker right out of college. Woo! Now, I loved it. I loved making money. I loved having money. I loved selling things. I loved the world of finance and stock market. I loved it. And I was decent at it. And so I found my way to this little bitty church. Pastor sits me down. Hey, let's talk about your tithe. Really? Yeah, you need to give 10%. After tax or before? (laughs) After my 401k? You know, contributions are before. Well, so, okay, all right, fine, whatever. And I, I did it just to buy off God so I could enjoy the rest of it. Great. But that same little bitty church offered me a job as a youth pastor for $17,000 a year, mentoring 20 kids. And at that same time in my life, I got a job offer making six figures on the floor of a $26 billion bond company. Now that's when six figures meant something, brothers and sisters. We're talking (laughs) 90s. And, And I'm supposed to make this decision over one particular weekend. And it was an easy decision, i got to be honest. A really easy decision. You're going to take the bond trading job. I picked out a Jeep Cherokee. I picked out a boat. I kid you not, I had a townhouse in a nice suburb of Columbus, Ohio, picked out for sure. It's Sunday night. I've gotta, I'm going to tell the church Monday morning I'm not going to take the job. God does one of those. Hey, let me, let me, let me just, can I have some input on this? <laughs> can I have a little input? And so, so this verse comes to mind. Uh, out of Matthew, we, we read, and I had one for Timothy too, but we don't have time for it because I'm running late. Uh, the verse comes to mind from Matthew. You cannot serve both God and money. So it's, it's midnight, and this thing comes zapping into my spirit. And so, with a great deal of reluctance, I went in the next day, turned down the job, said yes to youth pastor. Okay? Making $17,000 a year. That same pastor comes to me after I start, and he says, let's talk about your tithe. (laughs) And I got angry. I said, I just tithed $90,000 to you by taking this stupid job. (laughs) No! (laughs) Okay. Out of guilt and duty, I start doing this. One day, uh, $400. Somebody, I had $400 in my checking account. Somebody stood up in the church and said, we have a need for $400 for so-and-so. You know what he does. You know what our annoying, disruptive God does in that moment, right? (laughs) Right? You know. What's he say? Hey, why don't you do that? Nope, nope, nope. Ah, come on. It'll be fun. (laughs) No, 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 I'm not doing this. Come on, I'll surprise you. <laughs> Kicking and streaming. Okay. I didn't tell anybody. I was so angry. 
I did not tell anybody I did this. Because I walked home, well, I rode home, and I got home, and there was, you know, I had nothing for the week. Next morning, kid you not, anonymous cashier's check for $400 sitting at the foot of my door when I opened it in the morning. Nobody knew. Now, did I make any money? Did my faith result in like 100 times blessing or something? No. But what did I learn about what God is like? I learned something magnificent. And I tell you the truth, there has been no greater joy in my life than learning this lesson. My wife and I have given away cars. We've given away, I mean, and I say this not to boast, not in any way, shape, or form. It's because I need to, because I can grow a fond of my stuff. And we've seen God do such phenomenal work. And that has brought us so much joy. I really want this for you. That's it. That's all this is. I want you to taste some of the joy I've tasted. And I wish it were just a one-time thing, but I need to keep learning this lesson over and over and over and over and over and over and over. So you made it. Thank you. But here's the question. There are people that have lots of money, but they're so bound up, they're poor. And there are people without much, but they're so wide open, they're rich. Which are you. So Father, we bless your name and we hate it that you know us so well. And that, and that you know the things that pull at our hearts. And so Lord, without any condemnation, without any guilt, shame, manipulation, Lord, we bring our whole selves before you with reluctance and fear and worry and whatever else and ask that you would increase our faith to see how good and gracious you are and that all we have is a gift. And Lord, that you would wake us up to what you're doing all around us, that we might trust you even in this. We bless your name, Lord. Amen. Go ahead.